0: You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club.
1: Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. I'm so pleased to be here. I think I'm supposed to introduce us again for the radio. Sure. Um, Hello, and welcome to tonight's program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Mora Weigel, a postdoctoral researcher at the Harvard Society of Fellows and a founding editor of Logic Magazine. We're joined by Dr. Raman Chowdhury, data scientist and responsible AI lead at Accenture. We're here to talk about Rahman's work in democratizing the space to ensure ethical, explainable, and transparent AI for all. Rahman, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting. Yeah, so we start out, so tonight's event is called Finding the Humanity in AI. Um, Humanity and AI are both big words. They're words with complicated histories and sort of complex, one might even say fraught, sometimes politics associated with them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I thought it would be interesting to start out by asking you to define humanity and AI in whichever order you choose. Define right. the Right, so term. I'm going
0: to, I'll do it backwards. Um, first, I will talk a little bit about AI, and um, I was telling you in the back room that I think we both overthink things as academics, but it's it's very useful. Um, And as I see myself sort of translating a lot of these terms into industry, the term gets broader and broader and broader. And and there are two things I'm seeing right now. Number one, there's this tech lash against the term. Um, Frankly, it's now starting to become almost synonymous with hype. Um, you know, what is and is not AI, everything seems to be AI. Mm -hmm. I think uh, CES had a quote, AI pizza maker, which really just looked (laughs) like a conveyor (laughs) belt to me. Um, But then at the same time, there was a lot of fear. And our narratives about AI have often been one of like the Terminator or, you know, things that are harmful to humanity. So I've been using the term algorithmic systems. Mm -hmm. Why do I use algorithmic systems? This kind of ties into your question about what is humanity. So when you think about a system, like an ecosystem, we're really respecting the fact that this is not just technology that lives in a bubble. It's an interaction between humanity, society, and this technology. And what's really critical is then each has its role to play and each is equally important. So it's not that the humanity is subjugated to this amazing, awe-inspiring technology. It's that actually the two are supposed to exist in symbiosis. And I would even take it a step further and say, the purpose of the technology is to help and serve humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And often I think we've forget that I think there's a there's often this belief in this this uh, techno-utopian belief that humanity is flawed and technology will save us mm-hmm. as a social scientist um, I would disagree with that and say that the purpose of technology is to aid humanity in, in achieving its goals
1: mm-hmm. And to touch on two other terms, uh, I'm already going off script, to touch on two other terms uh, that I know you've written about and thought about, I feel like black box and white box are two terms that come up a lot recently around both AI and algorithmic systems. Could you speak a bit to those? I think you've been critical of the term white boxing, if I'm remembering correctly.
0: Yeah. Um, Say a bit. Yeah. um, So the terms explainability and transparency, have become popularized because of the General Data Protection Regulation coming out of the EU, which basically states that companies should have, quote, explainable and transparent technologies or AI, but what they did not do was tell us what that meant. So they sort of mm-hmm. threw these words at us, threw them, and actually put it into law, but did not quite tell anybody what that meant. Um, and that's led to a lot of confusion. So mm-hmm. when we talk about black box and, quote, white box AI, um, it is it is... Equally confusing because it's you know explainable to whom, mm-hmm. um, by whom. So if is it is it a black box technology? If um, a data scientist can understand it, but you know a non-data scientist cannot. Mm-hmm. So the purpose of this again is to sort of help people um, improve their lives or make decisions better. So when we're talking about explainable AI or transparent AI, um, I actually push the envelope further to say explainability is different from understanding, mm-hmm. um, and what really we should be aiming for is understanding. So it's it's almost, um, I don't want to say it's a it's a useless definition, but it is one that is also fraught with different layers and levels, mm-hmm. and it depends on um, the audience that's on the receiving end of the technology, um, who's explaining it, uh, you know, what it's being used mm-hmm. for. There's so many levels.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And do you think, I mean, you spoke a bit to this question of the human or humanity, Mm -hmm. which I feel like is a term that gets deployed a lot in different kinds of contexts um, around AI and sort of tech anxiety in general. Do you think that term, despite its sort of fraught history in certain ways, is that still a useful term for thinking about the kind of democratized explainability, the being useful to people that you aspire to or think should be a goal?
0: Well, I think it's, um, sometimes it's an aspirational term, um, which is good. I, you know, I think sometimes... I think we're overly focused on finding an end product or an end goal. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, I'll give you a technical example. When we're trying to say things like we want to make algorithms or we want to make AI that is fair, we want to make AI that is unbiased, et cetera, um, it seems to predicate this need for a singular definition of fair, Mm -hmm. which to me, sounds like a horrible thing. We would live in a very sad world if we had one definition for everything. So I like the fact that this notion of humanity is something aspirational. It gives Mm -hmm. us something to work towards. It gives us something to debate about. Mm -hmm. It gives us something, it gives us reason to have fun, interesting, and thought-provoking events like this.
1: Mm-hmm. And are there ways, um, again, going off script, that you're training as a social scientist? I mean, you said a few minutes ago, you know, that you identify as a social scientist. Yeah. I know that's your background. Does that inform how you think about these kinds of questions, too? Could you g- tell us a little bit about how you got from there to here? Yeah, I mean, so 100%, I'm I'm,
0: very grateful for... Uh, you know, all the wacky educational tangents that I've taken in my life. Um, And so I used to get asked this a lot, at least in the beginning of my career, like, oh, you come from a very non-traditional data science background, you know, because But then that presupposed that data scientists are programmers. Mm -hmm. So fun fact, I first heard about this job data science back in 2011. Mm -hmm. I was doing my PhD at UCSD um, in political science. But I've always been what we would call a quant. I'm a quantitative social scientist. Mm -hmm. So what was interesting to me was basically math with context. This idea that you can find patterns of humanity using data. And that, that to me was fascinating. That's why I did it. Um and when I heard about this data science job, to me that was a quantitative social scientist. Yeah. I, you know, I was a complete, you know, uh tech newbie. I did not know anything about Silicon Valley or Silicon Valley culture. So I moved here in like 2013. So I'm like 33 years old. I come here and I'm like, what is this place? And why is everybody asking me how many languages I code? Because to to me the Programming part was not the hard part. That's just executing code. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of nuance and beauty to executing good code. But the really hard part is operationalizing notions that are theoretical or philosophical, like happiness mm-hmm. or did someone like something. Um, that was always the interesting puzzle. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised that people were so obsessed with the code mm-hmm. and seemed to hand wave over the part that I thought was the hard part.
1: Right, that's really interesting. What was your dissertation about? What, what were you researching? <laughs> so people tell me now that like, they've read my dissertation, I'm like horrified every time. I've worked really hard to embargo my dissertation. Oh
0: my time. God, that's <laughs> a smart move. <laughs> yeah. um, so my, my dissertation actually is kind of interestingly relevant to some of the stuff we're talking about uh, sort of politically today. And it's it's about um, single economy regions and mm-hmm. how that impacts social capital and public expenditures. Mm. Um I specifically look at San Diego and the military, and I look at uh, Las Vegas and the gaming industry, Mm -hmm. and how the economic roots of those two regions ended up shaping the culture and the social fabric, and it's funny that I ended up in tech because I was not even thinking about Silicon Valley at the time. And we're seeing this pervasiveness of tech culture spreading everywhere. It's actually kind of fascinating. Like I travel all around the world and every city I go to that has a quote startup culture, Mm -hmm. it is a very, very similar culture. Um, And that's what I talk about in in my dissertation about how it leads, how good or bad it shapes the social fabric of Mm -hmm. the region it dominates.
1: And that whatever industry it is, but you saw tech becoming more and more pervasive kind of across industries, like yeah. a layer of every industry in a certain sense. In
0: in a sense, I, I think every industry kind of retains its um, character, mm-hmm. but I'll give you a great example. I mean, I've seen a massive cultural shift in banking, where mm-hmm. you think of like the fintech industry versus the traditional finance industry.
1: Right. It's a very, very different culture. It's kind of fascinating, mm-hmm. actually. And how did that, those interests and that work then, not to get too biographical, but how did that then lead you into doing the work you do now? What were some of the first projects you took on?
0: Yeah, so, um, you know, I I always like, because from Accenture, like a recruiter had reached out to me, you know, and at that time, I think they didn't really know. This was three, this was over three years ago at this point, I actually hit my three year Accenture anniversary only two weeks ago. Um, so the happy, this ha- happy, say that happy Accenture, Accenture <laughs> 3 <three-versary. laughs> Um It's been it's been like this crazy three years, and it seems now like it was so long ago. But when I was hired, like nobody understood what this stuff was, and I, I think the talk that made Accenture notice me was uh, after the twenty sixteen election. Um, I gave a talk on how how we how statistics failed us mm-hmm. in the election when we were thinking about the roots of polling, um, how it's communicated. So actually I gave this whole talk uh, thinking through like issues with polling, issues with bootstrapping data, but also how media outlets were communicating poll results mm-hmm. and how when you play this game of telephone from a statistician down to somebody listening to the evening news in their car or on a podcast or whatever, you lose a lot of nuance, and then mm-hmm. people misunderstand what's going on. Um, and I think that's really what catalyzed my work at Accenture. So some of the first stuff I've done is um, working with clients on creating internal governance, mm-hmm. um, creating technical tools that, at an enterprise level to try to identify bias, issues with fairness, et cetera. Um, and it's, you know, it's, been amazing to learn how different companies approach this, how
1: different industries approach these problems as well. Mm-hmm. And do you find, I think you said it was shortly after the election that you gave that talk. Mm-hmm. I think you alluded also earlier to sort of the tech lash or this moment of mm-hmm. more critical thinking about tech since the election. How other people heard that horrible word tech lash? No one. Crickets. I know Jim has. <laughs> um, but do you think that some of these kinds of oversimplifications that you were noticing in reporting before the election, has that changed at all in this atmosphere of heightened critical scrutiny, heightened attention um, to, I guess, either polling or the tech industry, which are sort of distinct, actually?
0: I I do think, one thing I, I like is that people are starting to realize there are questions I can ask and that they should be critical. I think there was a lot more awe about any of these technologies um, a few years ago. I used Mm -hmm. to actually start my talks, like every single one my first year, by saying there are three things I don't talk about. Uh, Terminator, HAL, and Silicon Valley Entrepreneurs Saving the World. Uh, Because there was just still that narrative of, you know, the, you know, these captains of industry, and they're just going to change everything for all of us, and we should just blindly trust them. And not to say that, that a bit of that doesn't still exist in certain mm-hmm. segments of the population. Um, but I do think people have gotten more critical. And, and I think journalism has actually been very important at, uh, about, uh, um, as, a, as a way for people to interpret and
1: understand this technology critically. mm mm-hmm. Hell Terminator. I always, am, I always think I'm like, you know, the male AI is a, is a killer and world dominator and the female gendered AI is the secretary. Right, of course. <laughs> For a girlfriend. Right. Women, women are here a, to help. So if you well, also don't speak about ScarJo or whatever <laughs> in public. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Well, do you, so maybe you could speak a little bit, I imagine the audience would be interested to hear you speak a bit about like what you're thinking about and working on right now. What are some of the big issues that are coming up sort of day-to-day and week-to-week? Day-to-day.
0: Yeah, um, I think in 2020, there's obviously a lot of focus on the election, mm-hmm. um, a lot of thoughts and you know fears on things like misinformation, Um, I'm actually working on a project right now with Angela Saini. She's the author of Inferior and also the author of Superior on um, identifying identifying pseudoscience on the internet. So Mm -hmm. specifically looking at anti-climate change, flat earth and anti-vax movements and how this information gets spread and evangelized. It's Mm -hmm. really fascinating. These are, you know, people who believe these things are not, you know, uh, like low education, low income folks. There are a lot of pretty smart people who believe very, very wrong things because they've read it on the internet or they live in some sort of a bubble. So doing a project on that. Um, I think the big thing, if I were to pick something that's sort of keeping me up at night, mm-hmm. um, is the rise of the surveillance state. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, this is thinking through, and my biggest fear, and this is maybe combining my two worlds as a political scientist, as well as a technologist, is how the the ecosystem of surveillance technologies can have a stifling or a chilling effect on democracy. Mm -hmm. So uh, if we look at India, uh, if we look at Hong Kong, we look at people, we see people who are dissuaded from peaceful, nonviolent protest that they're lawfully allowed to do because they are afraid of the use of surveillance technologies being able to track them and possibly later either being harassed or this, you know, uh, being something that comes back to bite them later.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you see that kind of fear in the United States
0: as well? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're already seeing pushback in some cities. I know San Diego has had um, a lot of discussion. La the uh, Sorry, in Los Angeles, there's Stop LAPD Spying. In mm-hmm. New York, there's Stop Surveillance Now. I mean, all of these groups are amazing. And really, like, what's interesting about these technologies, and again, like, as a social scientist, is they're not introducing new issues. Mm-hmm. They're actually creating an imbalance of power um, around issues that already exist. Mm-hmm. So when you talk to the folks that stop LAPD spying, with, spying, what they're really worried about is the over-surveillance and policing of black and brown neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. That's not a new thing, right? right? These are these are narratives we've heard our whole lives. It's just a, a further... Um, it's sort of tipping the scales away from the people and more towards um, authorities that they view as being, you know, uh, uh Looking at looking to sort of catch them or just track them in ways that are harmful and, and not beneficial to them. In San Diego, the narrative is about the Hispanic community, particularly undocumented immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, in New York, there's a lot of uh, a lot of fear about surveillance of sex workers and undocumented mm-hmm. immigrants. Um, so it's not that these technologies introduce new issues; they're just taking existing issues and making them frankly scarier.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you think this is a place where? I'm not just thinking of the pizza conveyor belt as like the most banal example of this, but this sort of tension between the old and new where, it's, you know, it's nothing new to have systemic surveillance of communities of people of color is nothing new to surveil sex workers in this right. way. Is this a place where you see kind of the language of AI and some of the kind of discursive authority that's accorded to data science doing dangerous political work?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think what happens and in, in- it's probably best illustrated through um, a lot of the home surveillance technologies. Mm -hmm. Um, As individuals, we get removed from having to actually deal with the situation because we have this veneer of objectivity that's provided to us um, via this technology. So we see something like, you know, apps that are built around improving quote neighborhood security. And what it's really doing is policing you know, black and brown bodies or people who are considered to be others or undesirables. That's Mm -hmm. actually what it's doing. Whereas before it would have been somebody calling the cops, which is maybe a more direct action or somebody going out on their lawn and saying, you know, get out of my neighborhood. You can now do it almost secretly. Um, And it's sometimes it, it... and this is a function of the design and the value proposition and the purpose of the Mm -hmm. technology. So if we're saying that the purpose of this technology is to catch bad people, now you're looking for the bad people. Mm -hmm. And that ends up kind of stirring up maybe people's unconscious biases, um, you know, fears um, that may be unfounded and and a lot of those kinds of things. So, but, but yeah, it's, it's um, added a different layer. And the other part that I think is important here is that these, the Silicon Valley often removes itself. or tech workers remove themselves from this um, by saying that they that they're just technologists. I hear this all the time. They're like, "Well, we're tech. We, we build technology. What people do with it, they're they're doing with it." And that's just a a very fraught justification um, for building something that you know can be directly harmful.
1: Yeah, and I suppose there's no way, I and mean, particularly with machine learning, there's no way around. Um, Reproduce because of the way that machine le- like tra- training an algorithm works. Right. Sort of the past has to be reproduced in the future in order to be confirmed. So there's sort of no way out of history, despite this fetish for technical solutionism, yeah, or like fetish for neutrality.
0: Well, so here's a really interesting um, thing that I noticed. I was teaching data science before I joined Accenture, and um, as a social scientist, I understood data provenance, right? I knew data was Problematic and flawed in a way because it was data based on human behavior, which is problematic and flawed at times, right? We don't make we don't make consistent decisions. We don't make decisions at our own best interest, like on a daily basis, right? Um, and what I noticed was that. My students said it did not come from a social science background. The computer science folks, mathematicians, physicists, while really great at what they do, they actually thought of data as a subjective truth—that it mm-hmm. was that it's what you are supposed to aspire to. Um, and I think that that's where some of this technology breaks. If you are if you are trying to optimize to the data, you by definition are going to reproduce right. what happened in the past. There are ways to think about um, or and and address the fact that knowing my data is biased, here are things I should look out for um, and do something, uh, do something about. But if your proposition is that, you know, quote, the data said so, or the data
1: is the truth, then you'll you'll never investigate your data critically. Right. And there's sort of this question, I forget who I stole this from, but when I'm teaching, I stole this from someone, I forget. Like it was maybe, like, was it Wendy Choon? Was it Kathy O'Neill? Someone, (laughs) but, um, and this idea of like, how would you make, for instance, a non-racist policing algorithm in the United States, right. given the history of the United States and right, of right. housing in the United States. And it's not even, it seems to me sometimes the the question of objectivity or subjectivity or truth of falsehood isn't even quite the right one. It's just that right. this information is embedded in a long history of structural right. racism from which it cannot be extricated. Right, right, yeah.
0: right. And and now you're hitting on the thing I call question zero, the just because you mm-hmm. can doesn't mean you should question mm-hmm. um, it and this is kind of the problematic narrative around certain technologies like facial recognition, often it's proposed as, hey, this technology is bad because right. it's not identifying Black women. It's like, well, you know, is the goal to have a surveillance state in which all people are surveilled equally? Mm-hmm. I don't think that's really what we're aiming for here. Right. Um, so there needs to be a more fundamental question, is which is, essentially what you've said, Mm -hmm. is the thing we are building a fundamentally good or bad thing for society? And again, that's one of those aspirational questions. I wouldn't want us to have a single answer mm-hmm. for that. What I would want is some sort of a process around which we constantly evaluate and reevaluate it, mm-hmm. where people have agency to opt in or opt out, or to, you know, to petition the system or change the mm-hmm. system. I, I think and, and this is not blaming one side. I see it on both sides. There's this constant need to like have an answer mm-hmm. to things. And like sometimes we have to wallow a bit in
1: the fact that there maybe is no answer. And do you see that? I mean, I know you travel a lot for work. You work in many places in the world. Um do you see ha- have you seen concrete examples where ideals of fairness or ideals of what democratic process should be mm-hmm. are different in, say, India or the European Union or the United States? Do specific examples of those kinds of differences? Oh, come to a- absolutely. And you know, this is even maybe
0: even removed from, like from culture and saying, even like between industries and what consumers ask of their companies. Um, but you know, I mean, I think the best example I'll give you, anybody in privacy will tell you the Europeans are horrified by Americans because they think we have no notion of privacy. We give away all of our data. um, and then Americans equally say the same thing about Asia, about Asian countries, particularly in China, where they say that, Oh my gosh! Like they give all their data for every, so I think there are these cult- cultural perceptions.
1: Yeah,
0: Um I am wary though to kind of make these broad cultural mm-hmm. brushstrokes. We see plenty of people in the U.S. pushing for privacy. I think what's interesting here is to define what we think privacy means, right. and the, even that envelope is being pushed quite a bit by a lot of these public surveillance technologies. Our notion of what is our right to privacy in public? I think is just a fascinating philosophical conversation to have, let alone a very salient technical conversation to have.
1: And like, there's so many questions I want to ask. Because <laughs> like, I think in the EU too, there's a tradition. In the US, I think we tend to think about privacy in opposition to government. Yes. It's like privacy is something citizens get from the government, where mm-hmm. I think the EU has a more robust tradition of right. thinking like about- Like a fundamental Privacy right. from converse, come from corporations yes. also, which yeah. we, I think, don't tend to have. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are a lot of things I want to ask about that. And there are no, are there any like specific stories? I mean, I know you go work and you train people in different offices yeah. around the world, um, are there?
0: Goodness, Um well, it's actually quite interesting. One of the last projects I did was for an unemployment agency. And what they wanted to do was, you know, given limited resources and people requesting services, use an algorithm to create a prioritization queue, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, identify who would get served first. And it was a function of who would get a job in the next six months. So the more likely you were to get a job the next six months, the lower you were put in the prioritization. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we think about fairness, this is actually a really interesting way of you know, translating maybe a conceptual notion into things that are actionable in code, we have to figure out, okay, well, what is fair in this situation? So given that... Um, there's no such thing as a perfect system, given that there will be error. Mm -hmm. um, What is an acceptable level of harm, essentially? Mm -hmm. What is an acceptable level of risk we're willing to take? And what we did with the client is identify that um, of the kinds of wrong you could have, it was more acceptable for someone to be incorrectly highly prioritized Mm -hmm. and less acceptable for someone to be incorrectly lower prioritized. So we were willing to absorb the inefficiencies of saying, oh, you you were not supposed to be higher up on the list um, than you were and we were less willing to absorb um the risk of saying you were put lower in the queue even though you should have been put higher so we actually had to make decisions about fairness and you know there are these notions of trade-offs and it's it, in in a technical sense it's often framed as a fairness accuracy trade-off mm-hmm. which i have issues with for many reasons like as a statistician but also just conceptually Um, accuracy assumes that like, that's the thing you're supposed to aspire to the quote, Mm -hmm. most efficient algorithm, um, which I I don't think is necessarily the case. Um, but in this case, it was quite interesting to actually have that conversation with the clients have to actually pin them down to like,
1: what is your notion of fairness and how do we move that from concept into code? Hmm. It's interesting, this notion of accuracy too, because at Mm -hmm. least in the case of this prioritization algorithm, it would seem that. The temporality of it is a bit different because it's not something right. that's happened in the past. It's pointing towards trying to help someone find a job in the future, right? right? right. So it seems like accuracy is sort of a mismatch concept. In well,
0: case. and also, like as a statistician, like and I'm going to go off on my like little rant about the term accuracy. Um, I so- love rant. <laughs> So like if anyone in here like actually does this stuff, the term like the worst thing to happen was to ever call that thing accuracy. So all accuracy or quote, it's an R squared value. And all an R squared Mm -hmm. value is, is how good are you at predicting your test data? So when I train my model, I get this data. And I split my data into like these two piles, and I say, This is the data I trained my model on, and this is like I check my homework with this other data. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when you were a kid and you were doing like the spell, like you know, you're like spelling things and you folded the page over and you tried to spell the word and you checked it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what we do with models. So all accuracy really is, is how good am I at predicting the data that I trained my model on. Mm -hmm. So when we're like taking that definition and we move it into all the issues we're talking about, about data bias, right? Um, about you know, generalizability of models. We see how that term accuracy falls apart immediately because mm-hmm. it's not accurate as in correct in the real world. Just mm-hmm. because something is more accurate doesn't mean it's better. So the, the reason I get ranty about this is, so when I first moved here, going back to like some my little biographical story, as a quantitative social scientist, if I ever walked into any of my like my quant classes mm-hmm. claiming that I had a quote accuracy in my model of like 98%, they would tell me I did something wrong. Because in order to predict human behavior, if you claim to predict human behavior to a 99% accuracy, you're just actually wrong. There's mm-hmm. too much unpredictability. There are too many variables. It can rain and no one can show up to your party or like what There's like a million things that could happen, right? Um, and when I moved here and everyone was just really obsessed with this one statistical metric of, oh, by the way, many, there are many ways, many models can be analyzed. We're just really obsessed with this R squared value. And people were saying things like, oh, I have a better model because it has a 99% accuracy. Like I nearly lost my mind because <laughs> I'd never heard that in my life.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you think, I mean, I know you do a lot of different kinds of public speaking, communication, mm-hmm. working with businesses. What... Um, I know at logic we think a lot about like what's the right register in which to write and communicate with the public about this kind of question. Mm-hmm. What are the most effective ways you've found of communicating the kind of rant or <laughs> critique of a of a procedure that you've just that you as you've just done up here? What are some of the different approaches to that that you've found work best? Yeah. When you show up at the Silicon Valley cocktail party. I want to tell everyone their metric is nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's raining, so you're the only one there.
0: Right, I'm raining, it's raining, so I'm the only one there because um, <laughs> San Franciscans do not venture out when it's raining. It's fine. Um, well, I, I think people respond well when it's something that's very relevant to their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so, framing these things, and uh, so a lot of the most compelling narratives and the way the ethics and technology space got even started was through books like Weapons of Math Destruction mm-hmm. and an Automated Inequality, which were not stories about technology and algorithms, but stories about real people's lives, about how algorithms can make lives worse for poor people, um, about how people get cheated. And these are very real situations that human beings find themselves in. So I think the, the important thing about translating any of this work is to ground it in what it just means for us as
1: human mm-hmm. beings. Yeah, coming back to the humanity. Exactly. Um, It seems as if... You know, thinking about sort of where this work touches the human or where it intersects with our lives, there are like different levels at which to think about intervening. There's sort of the the government regulation level at which something like the general data protection regulation mm-hmm. intervenes. There's the corporate level. There's an individual level. There's all sorts of like tech worker activism and organizing that's been happening in the past few years and gained a lot more attention through things like Tech Won't Build It. Um, mm-hmm. Recent Amazon actions just in the past few days, I think. Right uh, maybe you could say a little bit about any one of these different levels that speaks to you or how you, how you would address, you know, whether it's the, the government or the corporation or the tech workers, you know, coalition or the individual person worried about their privacy. Yeah. How do you think about approaching those different kinds of agents and telling them about their agency?
0: Yeah. I mean, as a social scientist, all things to me are about actor incentives and systems of power. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe my slightly controversial opinion here is that I don't think tech workers should have to unionize. Um, It's... I got into a bit of a Twitter debate the other day with someone about this where they they wrote this whole article about it and they were talking about sort of a scorched earth strategy. If you join a company and you find it unethical, and I'm like, you know, that is something that a highly privileged person can do because you can go without having a job. um, You can afford to be unemployed. um, You can also afford to potentially have a you know, have a negative mark on your employment history. Mm-hmm. You know, these are all considerations that, you know, and, and frankly, it's a massive burden for someone to, to feel the responsibility of almost single-handedly feeling like th- they need to push this change. And I think anyone who's done it um, has only done so at like very significant, like emotional and often financial costs. And mm-hmm. that doesn't get talked about, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um So like,
1: while I think... And that, do you think the people who can do that shouldn't... I'd missed this Twitter flame at, so I'm behind. <laughs> but um, do you I think mean, it people was, who... it, was a, it was a very, you know, it was obviously a very um,
0: friendly conversation. But, I, I like, I felt like, you know, kind of the controversial opinion there. And, of course, I think collective action is important. And mm-hmm. I think the fact that these workers are working collectively is what's important here. Mm-hmm. But this notion of this individual whistleblower, this individual person who's going to, mm-hmm. like, go all out um, is... It's problematic to me for a few reasons. So there's this really great Rebecca Solnit piece mm-hmm. called uh, called When the Hero is the Problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been absolutely inspirational to me when thinking about why we need like change in the system and Mm -hmm. it's not up to these individual actors. So what she talks about in, in the article is whenever she tries to create a story about um, like a feminist collective or a movement, she often gets well, Hey, can't, why can't you just like write another story about Greta Thunberg or Ruth Bader Ginsburg? And what she talks about is when we have these individual heroes, what it does is it, it, not just absolves the individual, the non-hero from mm-hmm. action, but it um, it also dissuades us from collective action. And it makes us think that my little bit that I can do, like unless I'm willing to go all out, you know, like quit my job, whistleblow, you know, et cetera, do something illegal, it's not worth it. Um, I think collective action has really what's been what's motivated a lot of the change. So that's kind of from the bottom up. From the top down, what I find really interesting is hearing lawmakers trying to grapple with how to regulate ai what to do about it um and I think, especially from a lawmaker perspective, they're trying to understand what this technology even means, right. and then also how to shape regulation around something that seems to be constantly shifting and changing.
1: And how important do you think that is? I mean, I know different people take different positions on this. I remember when Mark Zuckerberg testified in Congress, all sorts of people were clowning the right, Congress right, right. people saying, oh, they say the Facebook, they don't know what it is. And I found myself, to my surprise, defending these um, Yeah members of our gerontocracy, but just spending the the, uh, the Congress people saying, you know, like, they might not know how chemicals work, but that doesn't mean we can't regulate drugs. I mean, they don't right, need right, to know. Right. They don't need to learn how to code to be able to regulate it. Yeah. How, where do you come down on this question of how lawmakers or policymakers need to be educated on technology? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a broader question that
0: I get asked about, like, media and journalists. I get asked about, you know, just the general public. Mm-hmm. I think the important part is to understand the potential impact of it. Um, so you're right. They don't need to understand how a particular chemical reaction works. They need to understand that, you know, when a particular chemical is in the water, it can lead to birth defects, right? right? Yeah. Um, what they need to understand is like, you know, this, if we don't have the right level of explainability and transparency in algorithms, harmful things can happen. Here's how harmful things can happen. So it's it's about them understanding how to map out the risk and impact space, mm-hmm. um, and regulate or you know pass guidelines along th- that help companies create the right kinds of guardrails. Not like sort of maybe like a, a side thought here. So I know a lot of the narrative about tech um, gets dominated by the big tech companies. Mm-hmm. But what I actually find a lot of the clients I work with who are adopting this technology they're they're not um, to, to them technology is not precious. it's one way that they can provide their good or service to a customer. So what mm-hmm. they're actually the most interested in is providing their widget to customer X um, and in in doing so like they're they're looking for um, like they're looking to trust in this technology that they too maybe don't know a lot about. So they want to be sure that it's going to work the way they want. It. And they're actually looking for basically like a like, gu- like guidelines or guardrails for the government or whoever to tell them, yeah, this is actually appropriate or inappropriate use of this technology or is the way you should or shouldn't do this. Um, so a lot of my clients are actually, I don't want to say te- te- tech averse, but they're a little wary at this point. And they're very, very concerned about the negative impacts this could have on customers because they're ultimately just concerned about the longevity of the organization.
1: Mm -hmm. And do you think there are useful lessons from sort of the business sphere or companies and customers to be drawn for policymakers and citizens? Um, I I think there's a lot of parallels.
0: Um, I think companies do tend to get more um, immediate feedback from customers Mm -hmm. because they like quarterly revenue, et cetera, whereas a politician kind of you have to wait until your re-election cycle. Um, but there is this like level of responsiveness. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of lawmakers have gone back to their constituencies to try to understand like what are my problems at home mm-hmm. um when it comes to this kind of technology and what does it mean to the people who live in my district. And I think it's it's actually very compelling. And I mean one thing I have noticed like the Americanist Americanist in me has actually been fascinated the last few years is how much more local politics has become. I think for a mm-hmm. while it was um it was quite global for a while. Then it became very nationally focused, and now it's actually become very, very local. And people are very concerned at what happens in their district. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think this also translates with how we think about this technology. People are thinking very much about how does it affect my day to day, how does it affect my daily commute, or you know how safe my children are.
1: Hmm. And do you think that's a product of technologies getting woven into the fabric of everyday local life more?
0: Absolutely. I think that's part of it. And also, the other part is just this Mm. hyper-personalization. Everything is very, very tailored to us now, um, for better or for worse. I think it's like another hour-long conversation we can have on whether or not it's making people sort of more self-absorbed and more selfish, this constant um, inundation of things that are supposed to be made for you. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I do think it does lead to in a positive way, people pushing back and saying, this is not the way I want this to be. Hmm. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming
1: live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. And I know this is a bit of a of a non sequitur, but I know you do have this critique of the smart city or the idea of the sort of personalized polis uh, coming in at us through through algorithmic systems. Do you want to speak a little bit to that? Yeah. And this sort of feeds
0: into some of the thoughts and fears I have about the surveillance state. Um, Right now, we're in a space where a lot of governments want to provide better services to their their citizens by instituting, quote, smart cities. Now, if you were to ask anybody, what's the difference between a smart city and a surveillance state? I don't think people could tell you. Mm. And I can guarantee you within the next year, they will be synonymous with each other. And fundamentally, um, the problem is in the value proposition. When... People are sold when lawmakers are sold the idea of a smart city. It's always based on this narrative of safety and security, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to catch the bad people. We're going to find missing children. Um, you know, it's always about uh, inherently. It's about stopping the the bad people. And in doing so, just like with these home surveillance technologies, there has to be an other. There has to be a bad person. And guess who the bad people are? They're the people we've always vilified. We're not going to invent new villains. We're just going to find new ways to reclassify people as the old villains we've always had. Um, um so my my fear actually is that uh, and this almost actually goes back to my dissertation now that i think about it um is that this this value proposition is not how society is, like how society works. If we think about like literature on the social contract, on the rule of law, we don't adhere to the law because we're so afraid of being caught by the police. We adhere to the law because we've all agreed that this is the best way for society to work. We do the right thing because we feel like we should, not because we're so worried that some drone is going to pick me up on camera. Um, And my concern here is that by over-policing, we're going to that social fabric, we're going to get bystander effect, we're going to get people not wanting to be involved, because they'll be worried about maybe liability, they'll be worried about, you know, being tracked later. Um, and ultimately, I'm, I'm very concerned that just this concept of a flourishing society will actually be chilled, if we are over policing every little action that
1: people do. Mm. Yeah, you're, it's. I taught a class called "A People's History of the Internet" last uh, last oh, year, and nice. we did the two units that flow into each other: the Chinese, yep. or the Chinese. No, sorry, it's Google Sidewalk Labs, and then we mm-hmm. do the Chinese surveillance state, um, which is a topic that has gotten even more poignant since I taught the class, you know, yes. a year ago or whatever yes. it was. But uh, but I hear that. Are there any practical or let's see, to put it another way, are there ways that the smartness of the smart city can be repurposed to a more productive end? Is there any use for the nest or the Alexa? Should I throw, the, <laughs> throw it all away? Um, maybe you'll get in trouble for saying that. Um, but uh, are, is there any way to sort of re, reprogram the smart city without throwing the whole concept away?
0: Yeah, I mean... and. Uh... I think often, and this sort of feeds back into my critique of this idea of tech agnosticism. You're just going to build a technology, throw it up in the air, and you know it lands where it's may, I, I, where it where it may. Um, like the intent behind something is very critical and ultimately shaping where it goes. So, as I was saying, I think the problem. With smart cities becoming synonymous with surveillance states, is it's built on this narrative of fear, um, which ultimately is exclusionary. What I instead think we should imagine the smart city as is an extension of urban planning and urban design. So what if this is basically um, digital urban planning, where it's a way of kind of merging our analog and digital selves in real time and real space? And frankly, like anybody, you know, young millennial and Gen Z, like their digital and analog lives are already very very emerge. Can you imagine like a fascinating physical manifestation of what this would be? And if that is our value proposition for what a smart city should be, it is by definition inclusive because it is about engaging all citizens. It is about providing services to people as they want it. What it is not about is saying, you know, is inspiring fear. It's actually inspiring collaboration instead. Mm -hmm. Um, So what, what I, my dream would be is, you know, if, if we actually put the notion of a smart city in the hands of urban planners and urban designers, they'd actually probably come up with some really fascinating ways to use the same technologies we're using to track and surveil bodies and instead use it to actually improve people's lives and answer the questions that we actually think about every day, which is like, you know, is my bus going to be on time? In San Francisco, no. Um, the Muni will always be late. Um, but
1: you don't need the algorithm. You don't. It's just going to
0: be late. Take an Uber or, or a Lyft or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, or, you know, like, are my children going to get to school on time? Um, it's like the myriad of questions that we ask ourselves uh, on a day-to-day basis, which actually aren't about surveillance or about uh, safety and security or, you know. Um, so I, I think that would be a really interesting way to repurpose this notion of a smart city in a way that's more collaborative. I know there are some places that are already starting to think about this. So I was at the Barcelona Smart City Summit, mm-hmm. and I'm really fascinated by the way Barcelona has pursued the notion of smart cities. They're using um, basically a crowdsourcing platform um, to get citizen input real time on how to shape these technologies. There's a lot more transparency involved. So we do have have some early paradigms and what it could look like. And I think it's
1: worth exploring. And does ownership of data matter? I mean, doesn't it matter who, particularly, I suppose, now that we have machine learning, there's a sort of future oriented sort of speculative quality to data in a way where we gather um, and by we, I mean large corporations and states, not us, right, not me, right. but uh, gather large, large amounts of data in the anticipation that some useful or valuable kinds of patterns can be discovered in it. In this context, with the kinds of machine learning capacities we, they now have, um, doesn't the ownership of data matter? I mean, how do you think about that in this reimagining of yeah. smart? Yeah, um, I yes,
0: there. So the one thing about having public data is now public data. It's actually quite different from private data um, and can lead to some issues and problems. So um, just like maybe a small plug, I'm doing this... um, a distinguished professor practice series at the Pacific School of Religion up in Berkeley actually starts in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not yet finished my lecture slides, uh, but the my my it's, so it's a three three of us who are are professor practice. We each have four lectures. Um, it's actually open to the public, which is why I'm mentioning it. Um, and my first lecture is actually on uh, the datification of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it's it, you know it's not just that there's data, it's actually by having this technology, there's data being generated about us that did not exist before. Mm -hmm. And how might that data be used and utilized? I think there's absolutely a narrative to have about the appropriate use of data or intended use of data. Mm -hmm. Um, And a really good example is think something that seems innocuous, but later ends up being quite quite invasive are things like license plate scanners. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is not super sophisticated technology. If we put cameras on cop cars, um, instead of cops having to stop and write tickets, this camera can read in real time, track license plates with times and automatically send somebody a ticket if they've overstayed their parking time. Sounds wonderful, right? No one can seem to be There really doesn't seem to be a bad thing with this, um, except that now a database exists of license plates and timestamps. And what happened in Oakland, um, we had... ICE actually ask for that information in order to track individuals that they thought were suspicious. Mm -hmm. So this data about them would not have existed if it were not for this technology. So I think there is, so in the, I would say in the privacy space, they talk a lot about data minimization. Mm -hmm. I think that is something that we should start thinking about. What's fascinating about that term is it almost flies in the face of data science culture, Mm -hmm. which is about Collect as much data as you can, the world is your oyster. And I used to teach that as well, right? If it's on the internet, scrape it, it's yours. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is this mind, this mental shift that has to happen among data scientists to say, is this necessary data? Is this necessary information?
1: Why am I collecting it? What am I using it for? Are there kinds of data that you feel unequivocally should not be collected? Um at this point, genetic
0: data, yeah. marified by any collection of genetic data. Um, we don't have the kinds of protections um, it can that, that would shield us from it being used for a myriad of reasons. Um, I don't think there's the best track record um, of how a lot of this private genetic information has been used. And like, you know, going back to this question zero um, notion, you know, things like, Vacation suggestions based on your genetic history, <laughs> which has
1: actually happened. Is I got a Twitter ad for a diet. It was like, let us sell you a genetically tailored like, diet, and I was like, thanks. I hate it. I right. Hate it more right, than anything. right.
0: Like, and, yeah. and, and maybe if we had more protections and ownership of our own data, like. Yes, I do think a genetically attuned diet would be great if I could trust that this information could not possibly be sold to somebody else or reused in some way that could be harmful. And all that is actually, and the thing is like, people always talk about like regulation, stifling innovation, but I actually think of it the other way around. Like I'm not using this technology because I don't trust that my data is adequately protected. Mm. I want that ownership. So then I would actually use this
1: tech. I actually would kind of like something
0: like that, but I just don't trust it at the moment.
1: Do you think there is this line that regulation stifles innovation and yet something like GDPR seems to be creating so many kinds of business opportunities or opportunities for new kinds of technology? Mm -hmm. Is there more you could say about when regulation generates innovation?
0: Yeah, so I'll... um I'll, I'll attribute this quote to Zia Khan. He's the um, Director of Innovation at the Rockefeller Foundation. And he he said this term, um, brakes help a car go faster. Huh. And I, I think that is the best way to think about a lot of these guidelines and regulations. So to sort of explain the analogy, we drive 80 miles in the freeway because we know if something shows up, I can slam on the brakes and my car will stop. If I did not know that I could stop my car, I would crawl along at five miles an hour because I'd be, I'd be absolutely petrified that I'd hit something. And this is the thing with, a lot of this technology, the fact that it moves at lightning speed without being able to stop is not necessarily a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it will enable people to feel more safe to drive 80 miles an hour if they know that I can put the brakes on, I can stop it if I want to, I can take back my data, I have a right to, let's say privacy, or I have a right to not be found, um, or I have a right to visibility or transparency, or I can, I can uh, contest the algorithmic output, right? people will actually be more inclined to adopt this technology.
1: And do you think, I know no one can predict the future, but do you think that we'll see more of EU style rights to be forgotten kinds of rights to explanation or one's data in the United States in the next five, 10 years? Yeah. I mean, CCPA has certainly shaken
0: up the, the entire U S discussion on, um, on privacy. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, California has instituted laws that are very similar to GDPR, um, which in the U.S. is quite revolutionary and different. But what that's done is pushed the federal government's hand. It's pushed the hand of other states because essentially, you know, if you are starting a business, what you, or, or at least from a, a government perspective, a federal government perspective. You would ideally want uniform laws. You don't want 50 laws in 50 states. It makes it really difficult to, let's say, run some sort of a company or some sort of a business if you're Mm -hmm. trying to, you know, be outside of state lines. Um, So, like, I I, I do think that people are asking for more. We're going to see more, um, I suppose,
1: regulatory innovation Mm -hmm. coming from the bottom up. And are you seeing technologists or people with special kinds of technical literacy going into government to work on those or sort of educating from afar to writers, right. places like Logic have a role to play? Who do you see doing that go-between work?
0: Yeah, I, I, and this is sort of the space of people that have now kind of started to form around like to your point about GDPR creating Mm -hmm. entire industries and jobs. I think this is a very critical translation role that's happening Mm -hmm. between pure technology and, you know, society. Um, I mentioned earlier the role of journalists and simply educating the public and explaining things in a way that makes sense or even uncovering scandals and controversies, um, you know, and, and the thing is like tech, tech policy organizations have existed for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of them are getting smarter on AI, but they've, these organizations have existed. Um, I think a lot of lawmakers are bringing in more technologists, not just as advisors, but actually into their offices. They're hiring folks with a technology background. I, I, I think that's really fascinating, So hiring a technology staffer. Um, And I see more and more people on the Hill who kind of know what they're talking about this and and all of it's like, actually, I I think it's really, really wonderful.
1: Are there things, I think we're supposed to go to Q&A in just a minute or so, but we've talked a bit about what companies can do, what governments can do. You know, if you want to hire a technologist and you're a policymaker out there, please do it. Are there things that private citizens who don't necessarily work directly, I mean, I think we now all work with technology in one way or another, but people who do not work at tech firms, let's say, aren't coders. Ways that ordinary citizens who fit that bill um, yep. might be thinking about taking actions in this space of thinking about AI ethics and accountability. Yeah. Um so like
0: back to that sort of Twitter discussion that I was having. I gotta buy my, my phone I have to go catch. <laughs>
1: it, up it wasn't it wasn't
0: like a like a hot take <laughs> in debate. Like it's you know, it wasn't it wasn't some sort of a flame war. But like my my take on it was actually that uh, so the question was really about what should data scientists do when they're working at an unethical company, and my answer was vote with your feet. In in, in the sense that you don't have to. When I when I first started in data science, there were only a handful of companies to work at, and they were all only here. That's mm-hmm. why I moved here from from San Diego, and so I didn't move back to New York where I'm from. The only place you can get those jobs were in Silicon Valley. That is no longer true. And it's the same with, you know, tech companies with ethical principles. Um, there are a lot of companies out there that are at least trying um, to be ethical about their practices. Go find one and work there mm-hmm. if that's what you want to do. Now, if you want to work at a company that doesn't have a good track record, but you want to work there because they're a big name and you're going to get it on your resume, you're signing up for that, right? Um, so I think, you know, to your question about private citizens, I think that there's a lot more information out there so we can educate ourselves and be smart. So every time, you know, like there's the old saying, like if you don't know what the product is, the product is you. Mm. So you're, you know, you're downloading this app for free. Like what is the data that you're giving them? Think critically about, you know, before you um, you know, use maybe a fitness tracker where you're gonna input your weight and how many times you work out and what exercises you're doing. Um, like do do they have a privacy statement? Do they say explicitly, you know, I, we will not sell your data, things like that. So look for these things as you make your choices, because just like in every other market, consumer choice matters. So whether it's what app you download for free or what services you end up paying for, I would rather pay $10 a month to a company that has promised to protect my data than use an app for
1: free for a company that won't. So before I tell a gene collecting app about the gummy bears we ate backstage, Those I will make the sure bears, they're not selling right, our right. data. <laughs> oh, do we have folks line up for questions? Is it time? Uh, I think are there microphones or microphones to call on the If you have a question, please come line up back here. I think I was supposed to say that. My apologies. Please go. <laughs> we we'll do have one right. The, I suppose while people line up, we can
0: keep going. Oh, there are a lot of yeah, questions. Yeah, you
1: want to, is there anything else we didn't touch on that you want to be sure to? I mean,
0: there's like a lot, we can forever talk about this, but it, oh, there's a good number of people.
2: I think we're going to be here for a while. Um, so I was interested in hearing you talk about public and private data because mm. I think that that could change, right? Um, what is, where's the line between public and private data? Uh, somebody's address that's available right now, maybe they were doxed Maybe at some point, like with the right to be forgotten in the EU, they don't want that email address or that phone number there's public anymore. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering where where you see that line is between public and private. And then if you could talk about how that really relates to training models, right? Right. training ML models. If you're scraping a whole bunch of publicly available data, you can build a model from it. But that data might be made illegal in the future for that purpose that you used it for.
0: Right. So like. They're like three really interesting points within the statement you made. So the first, like when I was talking about public private data, I was using a very literal definition of like government data as quote, public data and private data, sort of non-government owned data, because this is just in the context of the license plate scanner. So the interesting, there was sort of the the thing about the license plate scanner data was the federal government can request it from, um, from a local government, whereas if you were a private company, and we saw this happen, for example, with Apple, et cetera, they can ask it of a private company, the private company can just say no. Um, you know, so making that sort of government distinction. But I think what you're talking about is also really interesting of this blurring of the public, the quote, public and private Sphere. So if I put my entire life out on Twitter or on a website um, or on my blog post or on my Facebook, what is public and what is private? And we've had some, you know, problematic, well, actually, it was interesting uh, legislation around, you know, scraping LinkedIn for people's photos um, and information. And actually, LinkedIn ultimately, I think, lost that lawsuit um, where you are allowed essentially to scrape images off of LinkedIn. Um, you know, so where where might something like that be problematic? I think one of the first things that came up when I first started this job was the infamous Stanford gaydar paper, mm-hmm. um, which was a, a machine learning algorithm that um, some folks at Stanford trained. And they scraped um, images off of a dating website and people's express sexuality. And they trained a model to say, hey, based on your face, we can tell if you're gay or straight. Um, and you know, like, just like, that's another like three hours just to like dive into all the issues with that. (laughs) I've used that one in teaching as well. It's actually like, it's like a perfect case study in everything that you can do wrong from, from like the provenance of your data to the basic premise, to the lack of science behind it to the misunderstanding of how facial recognition algorithms even work. Like there are technical issues, statistical issues. Data issues, full Like forever, you can teach a whole course on it. Um, but so then, thinking through what you're talking, then the third part of what you're talking about, I think, is really fascinating. Is like what's going to happen if something becomes illegal later, but you had built something on it previously? Um, and I don't, I don't know if that's you know a quite answered question yet. So what we could say is like one should have ethics by design, etc. But we can't anticipate everything that's going to happen, um, and. I fully understand that and appreciate the fact that so much of data science culture has been built on, you know, things should be made available and free and cheap, right? Open source is what made our field what it is. The fact that I can go to GitHub and learn anything um, is so valuable to me and to learn any of that, I need good data. And I struggled with my students to find good data. There are not, there are not good data repositories. Um, on the, It's actually much better now than it was even three years ago, but like, it's still not great. So we're, how, how, like, how does that clash. So folks have been, this isn't necessarily directly answer your question, but folks have been thinking about um, essentially like responsible rollout so this is kind of what happened with open AI and GPT too so what if we create a technology that could potentially be used harmfully like h- how do we create these like guidelines and rules around it and it is it is like an unsolved problem what I'd say is the space we can look at is um, security studies um, bioethics um, things like nuclear proliferation so how have those other fields which have created things that can be used harmfully or beneficially or or something that can be bad later but we didn't realize it today how have they addressed those problems
2: hi uh, i was wondering if you could speak a bit to i guess like the education skills gap that you might have perceived when you
0: work with clients when you work as an educator or just anywhere that you have may or not yeah might. um like education is key. Uh, that that really ends up being the the big takeaway. Um, but the problem is defining like what education means, right? So for some folks, it's just having a, a fluency and how to talk about this stuff or how to critically understand them. For some folks, it can mean like, what does this mean in my specific industry? So I think... Um, a really interesting example is like Finland. So the government of Finland has said, like, we want everyone to be, quote, AI fluent. Um, everybody in, in Finnish society to be AI fluent. And there was this really interesting discussion on, like, what does it mean for a dentist to be AI fluent? What, what do they need to know? But, like, maybe there's stuff they do need to know. What if AI is being used to identify if you need a root canal, right? H- how do you critique How do you critique it if you disagree, um, how do you understand if it's performing well? Um, so I, I think that this is something that our education systems are grappling with. There are a lot of really interesting private organizations that are kind of building up around this. You know, the Knight Foundation offers a really good course in, in AI for journalists. Um, and it's, it's you know, a, it's an exploding um, you know, what, is, what does it mean for for lawmakers to understand what AI is? And there's, you know, as with many of these questions, no one simple good and easy answer. I guess what I say is one of these things that will sort of be resolved by time as we just sort of become more familiar with these technologies.
2: Hi, my name is Jeremy, and I'm in the data and analytics space. And first, thanks for the great discussion. I guess the question that I have is, um, you know, oftentimes we talk about offense and defense in the sense of, like, offense going after building things and defense trying to um, sort of manage risk and some of the other things that you've been talking about. And I'm particularly interested in, especially I do some work here in San Francisco with um, underserved communities in the nonprofit space, are there things that we should be thinking about? Because Typically, companies that are going after products are obviously going after people um, where they may not be serving the interests of sort of underserved communities. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about sort of the intersection of, of AI and humanity in, in that space?
0: Yeah, um, I, I, I really love the question you've raised. Um, I think a lot about this. So often um, what we build is sort of framed in terms of the uh, – from a very business, business sense of, um, you know – how many, how many, how, what percent of the market you're able to attract or cover. And by that, and usually what that means is you're speaking to, quote, the average person. Um, and in the, tech ethics space, especially from an applied perspective, we're often talking about like edge cases, Um, but edge cases are no less valuable and no less important. So thinking through, um, you know, the way you kind of framed as a defensive space, the risk space, if we actually look at a lot of the risk management literature um, and people who work in operational risk, for example, it's not, it's actually not about, like, how do I frame this in the right way? it's about understanding who is being harmed and making sure it's not uh, specifically focusing on a particular segment of the community. So it's the. So it's it's overly simplistic to say that, you know, my model is 90% accurate, therefore it's only 10% of the time wrong, if it's 10% of the time only wrong for a particular subset of society, right? Because then that's actually a problem. So I guess if I were to put it into slightly more technical terms, all models have error, there's no such thing as a perfect model. Um, What you actually aim for from a literally from a a technical perspective is having an error term that is uh, random. So in so Another way to frame what model error should look like is an expectation. Everybody in this room should have an equal likelihood of a model being wrong for them. It should not, in particular, be wrong most often for one particular set of people than, than another. Um, so, thinking about what this means from an applied perspective and from a business perspective, often we lose that when we say, "Hey, we're capturing most of the market" or "We're addressing most of the people." There, there isn't enough study done into who you are not addressing and who you're not, uh, you know, who who you're not. Uh, I'm um, talking to and you know going back to this like surveillance narrative People love to, tying it to this like safety and security narrative, they love to say like, oh, we've caught this many people and this many criminals. And my question is always, how many people like my dad have you unnecessarily detained in order to do so? We don't actually test the false positives. We love to point at the few times we have caught people. Um, so I, I think there is, there is this need for additional measurement and metrics around impact and not just things like efficiency.
1: Okay, hi. Thanks so much. Um my question is around the concept of fairness and just thinking about how Fairness even in different disciplines is defined differently like the social science versus how it's defined
2: in law versus philosophy. and um, so I'm curious around your thoughts related to kind of what definition, how do we decide what is fair in certain contexts and you provide an example around mm-hmm. you know with this particular company we're thinking about what is fair, but what are the constructs that should be applied
1: in, ter- in terms of who's deciding what's fair and should companies be? Deciding what's fair and, um, yeah, the, the play, I guess, between justice versus um, correcting for historical inequities and intersectionality and things like that.
0: But, yeah, so great. Great question. And you're kind of tapping into the things I, I really love about this job, um, which is sort of the combination of the social and the technical. So ultimately, once we've defined, even if we're able to like, let's say define what we mean by fair, um, we actually have to have a way to either try to measure it, try to track it or trace it um, and quantify it, which is in and of itself kind of a problematic thing to do because we can't quantify everything, particularly you know notions of things like fairness. Um, and you know, I, one cannot raise fairness without talking about one of the most famous talks about fairness from this conference called Fat Star, which is actually happening right now in Barcelona. It's, um, Fairness, Accountability, and Transparency. It's sort of the, um, ethics, uh, like academic conference with one of the most problematic names. And know
1: Nips and Fat. It's well, like, yeah, really well, so at, least, so at least
0: <laughs> Nips became Neurib. So it used to be the second most problematic right. name. Now it is the first most problematic <laughs> name, because um, Neurib's wised up, right. um, Thank you, folks, like Anima, right? Uh, Anima Anand Kumar of uh, Mm -hmm. NVIDIA. Um, So there's this... Pretty famous talk from the first Fat Star conference, which is called "21 Different 21 Definitions of Fairness." Um, you can watch it on YouTube. And in this, this professor from Princeton goes into exactly what you're talking about. Not just in social science, but even within, within different disciplines, how notions of fairness can uh, be totally different. But also in some cases, particularly when you're quantifying fairness, they can be at odds with each other. So the notion of, let's say, group fairness versus individual fairness. If you're optimizing for one, you may actually be reducing another. So what what does that mean when I go to a client and we're actually trying to action on this stuff? Um, what's really funny is often clients come and, and they want like a technical solution. And I tell them, you know, you actually need good governance. And they're like, no, no, we just want like a technical thing. And I'm like, fine, here's your technical thing. And they're like, oh, you know, um, we need to figure out what all this stuff means. I, I guess, I guess we need governance. So, like, <laughs> hmm. um, So where it often starts is, you know, the basic principles of an organization um, sitting down, actually defining what these mean, because you know com- a company doesn't make one AI algorithm; they make many, and you actually have to have, to have internal consistency across them. So you have to have sort of the overarching aspirational goals of fairness, but then on a project by project basis, you actually need to put it in context and define it. So the example I gave earlier about the unemployment agency. So in this case, it was more okay to have a false positive, which is someone being ranked higher than to have a false negative than someone being ranked lower. And that was a context specific question where we would rather, I suppose, waste resources than and then unfairly deny someone resources. And that was a very context specific question. So it's, these are not things that are easily automatable. These are not things that are like a checklist. Um, and it's this combination of like technical acumen, but with the critique and critical thought that goes into it.
2: Yeah, I'm an engineer and, um, you know, AI is something we've added over time. We've given the name AI to something we've been doing for a long time. We look at a lot of parameters, and we decide what parameters we look at, um, and then we decide what algorithms we use to adjust those parameters and we come up with decisions. Um, that's old AI. New AI, uh, an example is the um, Watson is a good example. Uh, they wanted to say, well, what? How do we know something is a cat? And instead of trying to define a cat, they gave a million pictures of a cat to the machine, and the cat and the machine then realized, you know, there's all kinds of ways we can identify a cat. Now the machine can. So we're we're talking about people now, and we put all this data in, and um, it's going to perhaps come up with our prejudices. Certain ethnic groups, or you know, if we look at the newspaper, we look at who's in prison, all these different things. It's going to pretty much incorporate a lot of our own uh, prejudices. Um, And my concern might be is I might want to get on an airplane sometime in the future and it won't let me do it. And I won't know why and no one else will know why, because perhaps my shoe size is is the defining parameter. And, um, you know, and that's my concern. Can you address that?
0: Yeah, um, I I think you're actually touching on, like, at least to the second half of your question, something that kind of came up with this whole Apple card um, debacle or debate or discussion. So quickly recap um, uh, there was some controversy around the Apple card because this man's wife was denied credit uh, and he was granted credit, even though her credit score was higher than his. And what I found the most compelling about it was when he called customer service, the best they could tell him was, I guess the algorithm said so, which was like quite literally the wrong answer to give. Um, but so there's sort of many layers to unpack here. So like, number one, is it sexist? Actually, we don't know. Um, just because one person or like I know Steve Wozniak like timed in like saying, yeah, My wife had an issue too, because two people um, happen to have an issue doesn't necessarily mean the entire thing is biased. So what we need is to your point, like ways of actually understanding whether or not there is a systemic bias to the algorithm, not that just like one or two people had a bad thing happen. However, when one or two people have a bad thing happen, we need that infrastructural like explainability and understanding. And this is where like a customer service rep needs to understand enough about an algorithm to communicate to a customer who may not know anything about AI, what just happened here. So to your point, like the contestability is really important. So the fact that you should be able to call and say, hey, I have a problem with the fact that this output ended up being a certain way, that's an infrastructure that needs to exist at a company. On top of that, the person on the receiving end who's helping you has to understand how to help you. And in order to do that, needs to be able to critically look at this algorithm, or at least. Raise to the right people this, you know, the need to critique an algorithm so that, for example, shoe size isn't impacting your ability to get on a plane. And these are all like, I was talking about governance earlier, like infrastructural governance questions, like systems that need to exist. And so we're talking about like GDPR earlier like what happened with GDPR was companies had to scramble to create an internal infrastructure, right? So if I have the right to be forgotten and I tell some company, hey, like erase me from your data sets, they actually have to have a way to do that, um, which is like actually not a very, again, and as an engineer, I'm sure you'll appreciate, that's not an easy thing to do is find an, an instance of of this person existing across all of your data sets and somehow protect it or silo it so that they're, that this individual is not found. So it's... um. I think the, the the way to address the concerns you've raised are actually internal infrastructure questions. Oh. This is our last audience question.
1: Hi, so I'm a law student, and today my criminal procedure professor told me that he has formed a company that they're going to be testing an app that is going to be used in police stations to read people their Miranda rights instead of the police now saying it. And I'm wondering your thoughts on that. You talked about being an informed citizen and looking at the privacy statement, but when you're in the custody of the police, that's going to be very difficult to yeah. do before you sign away your information.
0: Right. Right. Wow. That's, that's really interesting. Cause um, I, like, I guess a more, a, a, like a, a less weighty example of what you're talking about are like all of us in end user license agreements, right? Like we're in this sort of this is so interesting. Like I'm sure all of my privacy law friends are going to be like horrified to hear this. By the way, um, so I guess to frame it in a way that I think most of us in this room can understand. Is, um, you know, anytime we like update our operating systems on our phones or whatever, we have to like agree to this end user license agreement. Right. Which is fully explained, just like your Miranda rights, but none of us read it. None of us understand what it's saying. But we're captive because we have to say yes to it. Otherwise, our phones will not update. And, and one can only say no a certain number of times before your phone bricks and you literally have to update. So, you know, I, I suppose that's a that's a less um You know, a less charged example of what you're talking about, where you've been arrested, um, you have very limited rights, and now you kind of are handed this thing, and everyone's kind of pressuring you. Yeah, yeah, just like agree to it, right? Um, And and I think where that starts to fall into, and I would be curious as to what your professor thinks about does Does he think it? it, He or she think it it actually inform? creates more informed consent, because in the privacy space, that's really what people are aiming for is not just consent, but informed consent. And this is where we start to, at least from a technical perspective, I see that translation as this difference between explainability and understanding. It's one thing to just give you a long document and say, here, it's explained. Um, Informed consent would mean I actually understood what it said. And when I click, I agree on this, like I've actually read my rights and I've internalized what it means to me. Um, And I'm curious what your professor would think about whether they feel it gives a prisoner more informed consent than if a police officer were to read it to them. That's interesting. I, I think it's worth thinking about, um, and it may be an improvement. I, I really couldn't say, but um, I, I think my only concern would be it would be just like
1: an end-user license agreement, ultimately. Um, well, I, the, I'm given to understand we you have to wrap it up here. It is an informed tradition to ask visiting speakers, what is their 60 second plan to change the world? Whether this is you have to change the world in 60 seconds, or you only get 60 <laughs> seconds to say your plan. We can leave open to your interpretation. But Raman, thank you for being here. What's your 60 second plan? plan this is like the 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 high pressure question
0: like more than any other i've been like trying to figure out the answer to this um i think i just actually have a very very simple answer to this is the decentralization of wealth and power um we live in a time where we have unprecedented um inequality in both wealth and in, in in structural power and i find that very frightening um so that would be my 60 seconds. I suppose I did it in less than 60 seconds. I explained it in less than 60 seconds. It will take significantly longer than 60 seconds to, to reach
1: understanding. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Well, anyone who knows anything about logic or me or Mon can probably know. We can all get behind that goal up here. Uh, thank you so much for joining all of us here tonight at Inforum. I'm Mara Weigel uh, and good night. <laughs>